Well, good morning. Welcome to First Free. My name's Nick. I'm one of the pastors here. We're so glad that you've joined us in worship here this morning. We're gonna continue in our series on studying the book of Acts, which did you know we've been studying this for eight months now? We've had a couple of detours over that time, the Easter series, Christmas, but otherwise we've been in Acts. And I don't know about you, but I've really loved this study. And I think I'd put the book of Acts as one of my top favorites in the Bible. It's amazing to watch God work through this first church and these disciples be obedient to the Great Commission and take the gospel message everywhere. And then it's also awesome to see Jesus fulfill his promise that surely I am with you and fill them with the Holy Spirit. In fact, I've done a similar study in a previous church and at the outset they encouraged us, encouraged us to underline every time you see the word spirit capitalized because that's referring to the Holy Spirit. And it's a great exercise, it'd be pretty easy to go back and do, but spoiler alert, it's over 50 times throughout the book of Acts. And we've seen it here from the very beginning when Jesus promises to baptize his disciples with the Holy Spirit, which he then does at Pentecost, all the way up to last week when we read that Barnabas was referred to as a man full of the Holy Spirit, and then he begins this wonderful ministry with Paul. Now, I believe one of the reasons they see so much work of the Spirit is that this church is a praying church. And that's another great word study to do. Look up the word pray or prayer in Acts. It occurs 34 times in this book, 21 already up to this chapter 12 that we're going to study here this morning. So it's pretty clear that for this church and for ours, prayer is important. And so speaking of prayer, let's start off here with a prayer and then we'll dive into God's word. Father God, we thank you for this time each week that we can just gather together here in your presence, in your house, with your people and hear from your word. Lord, I pray that you would give me the words to say this morning, that this would be your word. And I pray that you give us all ears to hear, hearts to understand, and then a will to go and do what you've commanded us to do. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name, amen. We'll be in Acts chapter 12 here this morning if you wanna turn there in your Bibles or the verses will also be up on the screens. <clears throat> it says, about that time, King Herod Agrippa began to persecute some believers in the church. He had the apostle James, John's brother, killed with a sword. When Herod saw how much this pleased the Jewish people, he also arrested Peter. And this took place during the Passover celebration. And then he imprisoned him, placing him under the guard of four squads of four soldiers each. And Herod intended to bring Peter out for public trial after the Passover. But while Peter was in prison, the church prayed very earnestly for him. So we need to pause just right here because there's so much packed in these first five verses. Now the New Testament mentions several Herods, which was a family name throughout the gospels and into the book of Acts. This King Herod Agrippa, as the grandson of Herod the Great, who you might remember from Matthew chapter two, and after, after a visit from the Magi, the, the wise men, it says that he sent soldiers to kill all the boys around Bethlehem who were two years old and under, in hopes of eliminating this new and rightful king of the Jews, Jesus. Now this murderous trait unfortunately flows down through his family line. Herod Antipas was this Herod's uncle. He's the one that had John the Baptist beheaded. And now Herod Agrippa is sadly following suit. You know, the NLT says that he began to persecute believers. Other translations say that he laid violent hands on them and he has James killed. Now, unfortunately for James, this is something that Jesus had already told him would happen. 
If you remember the time that James and John come to Jesus and ask him for these seats of honor at his right and at his left, and how does Jesus answer that? In Mark 10, he says, Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering that I'm about to drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism of suffering that I must be baptized with? Oh yes, they reply, we are able. They don't know what they're saying. Then Jesus told them, you will indeed drink from my bitter cup and be baptized with my baptism of suffering. And so now other than Judas who has taken his own life, James is the first apostle to be killed. He's the first apostle to be martyred for his faith. And the only apostle's death actually recorded in the Bible, although based on church history and tradition, we're fairly certain that all the apostles other than John were martyred for their faith. And now persecution wasn't something new for this Acts church. We've already seen the apostles arrested in Acts 4. They're arrested again and flogged in Acts 5. Stephen is martyred in Acts 7, and that follows with more persecution in Acts 8. Now, they did enjoy a short time of peace, particularly right after Saul's conversion. It says in Acts 9 that they enjoyed a, a time of peace. But now Herod is starting the persecution up again. And, and much like his grandfather, it's because he wants to cling to the throne. He wants to be king himself. And so he needs to curry favor with the prominent religious leaders there so they don't complain to Rome too much about him. And so when he sees that killing James pleases these Jewish leaders, he arrests Peter also with a pretty clear intention to have him executed as well. And he places Peter under maximum security, perhaps aware of a previous miraculous escape from prison. If you remember that from Acts chapter 5, the religious council, the Sanhedrin, had arrested the apostles and thrown them into jail, but God sent an angel to release them from jail. And so Herod's taking no chances here. He places him under the guard of four squads of four soldiers each. And then the church starts praying. So let's pick it up again here in verse six. The night before Peter was to stand, or be placed on trial, he was asleep, fastened with two chains between two soldiers. Others stood guard at the prison gate. Suddenly there was a bright light in the cell and an angel of the Lord stood before Peter. The angel struck him on the side to awaken him and said, quick, get up. And the chains fell off his wrists. Then the angel told him, get dressed and put on your sandals. And he did. Now put on your coat and follow me, the angel ordered. So Peter left the cell following the angel, but all the time he thought it was a vision. He didn't realize that this was actually happening. And they passed the first and second guard posts and came to an iron gate leading to the city, and this opened for them all by itself. And so they passed through and started walking down the street, and then the angel suddenly left him. And Peter finally came to his senses. It is true, he said, the Lord has sent his angel and saved me from Herod and from what all the Jewish leaders had planned to do to me. And when he realized this, he went to the home of Mary, the mother of John Mark, where many were gathered in prayer. And he knocked at the door of the gate, and the servant girl named Rhoda came to open it. And when she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed that instead of opening the door, she ran back in and told everyone, Peter's standing at the door. Now we can pause here again and recognize that that's pretty funny, right? I mean, imagine Peter, he's had this covert, angel-led escape from prison. He makes it all the way to this gate, only to be left just kind of standing and awkwardly knocking in the cold. Verse 15, you're out of your mind, they said. When she insisted, they decided, well, it must be his angel. Meanwhile, Peter continued knocking, and when they finally opened the door and saw him, they were amazed. He motioned for them to quiet down and told them that the Lord had led him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers what has happened, he said, and then he went to another place. 
Now there's some debate among scholars here about what is meant when it says that they believed it was his angel. Some scholars believe what they meant was his ghost, and so meaning the people assume that Herod had executed him. Other scholars believe um, that it was his guardian angel is what they meant, which in Jewish thought, everyone had one, and that guardian angel could actually take the form of that person. Now, I don't know what we do with that, but there you have an interesting fact. Now, this is obviously also different James than the one mentioned before, the, the apostle, you know, he's, he's gone now, but this is the brother of Jesus who wrote the book of James and became the prominent figure, the prominent leader in the church at Jerusalem. And another interesting note is that we don't know where this place, this other place where Peter went is, and this is where Acts really takes a big shift because other than in Acts 15 at the Jerusalem Council, this is the last time we see Peter. From here, the book shifts to following Paul's ministry. So let's finish out these last couple verses, verses 18 and 19. At dawn, there was a great commotion amongst the soldiers about what had happened to Peter. Herod Agrippa ordered a thorough search for him. And when he couldn't be found, Herod interrogated the guards and sentenced them to death. And afterward, Herod left Judea to stay in Caesarea for a while. So it's not even safe to work for the Herods, right? Now, this wasn't necessarily uncommon. Actually, Roman soldiers were subject, if they lost a prisoner, they were subject to the same punishment that that prisoner was to receive. And we're gonna find out the rest of Herod's story next week when Kevin preaches on the rest of Acts chapter 12. But what an amazing story of God's deliverance here. And we see back in verse five that this happened as a result of the church praying. And so that's the main point of the message here this morning. Our key takeaway here from this scripture is that God answers the faithful prayers of his people. Now, right after saying that, can I just admit something to you all? This is an area of real struggle for me. I mean, first of all, my prayer life, pretty much my entire walk with the Lord, it has been a challenge for me. Pretty early on, I, I kind of grew tired of how you're taught to pray, of just keep giving God your requests and I'll see you later, I'll be back with more or maybe the canned mealtime or uh, nighttime prayers. And I remember thinking, man, there's got to be more to prayer than this. And there is, and we'll see that this morning. And then when you add faithful or faith-filled prayers, that's another area that's a challenge. I feel like I could grow. You know, Consistent or persistent prayer is not a strength for me. I, I wouldn't call myself a prayer warrior. I'm so thankful for those of you who are. And then you add in faith, you know, deeply believing that God answers prayer, particularly in this miraculous way. That's, that's been an area of doubt that I've had to wrestle through. Now, I won't ask any of you to, to raise your hands, but I'm guessing I'm not alone in this. I bet some of you would admit here this morning that, yeah, my prayer life has been a struggle. And, and I hope we can be honest about that. I hope we're a church that can be open and honest, you know, real and transparent, and yet still challenge one another to grow in our faith. And you know, as the group's pastor here, I'm, I'm hoping that's where groups come in, that those are safe places where people can be real and authentic about what their walk with the Lord really looks like, both the good and the bad. We can take off our masks in those space. And what I mean by take off your mask is when you're here on Sunday morning, anytime you ask someone, hey, how are you doing? What's the answer you almost always get? I'm fine, I'm good, right? A previous church, there was a guy that would always tell me, I'm blessed and highly favored. I was like, man, you don't ever have a bad week. <laughs> and now I understand we don't need to always unload all of our problems on each other, but and I really hope that we can be a place, and particularly that's my hope and prayer for groups, that we can be authentic and transparent, and thus we have a lot of growth and transformation. And I know that's a little bit of a tangent, but I do think it's important. 
But, but let's get back on point here. Let's break down this idea that God answers the faithful prayers of his people because I have found some encouragement. I have learned a lot as I've studied this section of scripture and others like it. And we're actually gonna tackle that statement in reverse order. So we're gonna start with prayer. First, looking at how this church prayed. Acts 12.5 says that while Peter was in prison, the church prayed very earnestly for him. Other translations say very fervently. And the Greek adverb used here is ektenos, which can also be used to describe a muscle being stretched to its limits. And a similar word is actually used with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Luke 22.44 says he prayed more fervently and he was in such agony of spirit that his sweat fell to the ground like great drops of blood. And so we're talking here about serious prayer. And as I mentioned at the beginning, this church takes prayer seriously in general. And right after this church formed, you know, Peter's first gospel sermon, there's 3,000 people added to the church. We read in Acts 2.42 that the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. I mean, the first thing that Peter does when he realizes that he's escaped from prison is go to a house where it says, many were gathered in prayer, and he knew exactly where to go, so this must have been a very common thing for them. And this really comes from the apostles' leadership. You know, very early on in the book of Acts, after Jesus has given them his final instructions and then ascends into heaven, we read in Acts 1.14, that they met together and were constantly united in prayer. And of course, the apostles are following the lead of Jesus. Over and over again throughout the gospels, we see that Jesus often withdrew to the wilderness, or some other translations say, often withdrew to lonely places for prayer. He got away by himself just to be with his father, to talk to him, to be in his presence, to hear from him. When Jesus chose his 12 apostles, for instance, we see in Luke 6 that he went up onto a mountain and he went up there and he prayed all night. And then at daybreak, he called his disciples to him and chose the 12. So Jesus' prayer life was so amazing that that's the one thing that his disciples asked him to teach them. Lord, teach us to pray, it says in Luke 11.1. 1. They didn't ask how to do miracles or how to share the gospel, but how to pray. Which, by the way, that gives me great encouragement. I mean, if these guys who'd spent so much time directly with Jesus recognized that their prayer life still needed some work, well, maybe I shouldn't be surprised that mine still needs some work. And it's also encouragement to see that you can ask Jesus for help in this. He didn't scold them. He didn't say, well, you guys don't get this yet. No, he taught them. And that's where we get what's often referred to as the Lord's Prayer, which isn't necessarily some canned words that we need to repeat back, although there's, there's nothing wrong with that, but it's more of a, a model of how to pray, which is exactly what Jesus said. This then is how you should pray. So if you struggle with prayer, the how or the what, kind of like I do, it's got to be more than just giving him requests or muttering some canned words. Well, let's just break down this model to look at the great variety involved in prayer. First of all, we see that prayer is relational. It's our Father in heaven. We should exalt God in prayer. Hallowed be your name. Or the NLT says, your name be kept holy. Prayer seeks to live into God's kingdom and seeks to follow his will. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Now, prayer does include making requests, even of seemingly small things. You know, give us this day our daily bread. 
which was not such a small thing to Jesus' original audience, but does show we can ask for anything. Prayer includes asking God for help and actually living out our faith, you know, as we forgive others. Prayer includes confession and repentance, you know, forgive us our sins. It includes seeking God's protection and deliverance, deliver us from the evil one. And notice also that prayer is communal. It looks beyond just me. It's our Father. Give us, forgive us, deliver us. So there's so much more involved in prayer than maybe we were taught in in Sunday school or maybe what you think about prayer. And I believe if we recognize all this variety in prayer that we would pray more. And it's clear from what we've seen here that prayer should mark the life of true disciples of Jesus. Prayer marked the life of this Acts church. They clearly believed what James, Jesus' brother, would later write in James 5.16, the earnest prayer, there's that word again, The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. The verse just prior to that talks about the prayer offered in faith. And so now let's look at faith. And we we get a definition right from Scripture. Hebrews 11.1 tells us, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Assurance and conviction. Assurance is faithfully resting in God's truth, and conviction is faithfully living as though it were true. But you know, we see in this section of Acts two different measures of faith, so to speak. I mean, first is Peter. The dude's literally asleep in jail on the night before a likely execution, right? That's resting in God, in the assurance of the things he hoped for. Almost every resource that I looked into for this section noted that this was an act of faith, Now, some pointed out the fact that Jesus had actually already told Peter how he would die. You know, at the end of the Gospel of John, Jesus tells him, when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and others will dress you and take you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to let him know by what kind of death he would glorify God. So Jesus is telling Peter he's going to be crucified. And so perhaps Peter was resting here in the assurance and the conviction that it wasn't yet his time. Now, I suppose that depends on your understanding of when you are old, right? We don't really know how exactly how old all the disciples were. Peter's the only one mentioned as being married, so perhaps he was one of the older ones. And these events in Acts 12 occur about 10 years after Jesus had told Peter that. So very likely, Peter at most is about my age, which is, you know, early to mid-40s, which if you ask my kids, that's old, right? (laughs) But many of you probably wouldn't agree, right? Please, thank you. But Peter lives on many more years. He writes First and Second Peter about 20 years after this, and then tradition tells us that he was martyred a couple years after that. But we, so what, I guess it does depend on what you believe there or what your perspective is, but we do see a surprisingly calm man chained to two soldiers in prison awaiting what's likely a death sentence. I mean, he's in such a deep sleep that the angel has to hit him on the side to wake him up and then give him very specific instructions on how to get dressed and how to follow him out of the prison. And Peter thinks throughout this whole encounter that it's just a vision, which we got to give Peter some credit there, right? He's just a couple chapters ago in Acts 10, he had a very real experience with a vision. But I'm coming down on the side of this being Peter displaying very strong faith. He's resting in the assurance and the conviction that God's got this regardless of my circumstances. But we see a little bit of the opposite from the rest of the church. 
You know, they've been in this earnest, fervent, deep prayer that we've mentioned. They're living out the conviction that prayer works. But what's their response when the prayer is answered? Verse 15 says, they told the servant girl, you're out of your mind. And when she insisted, they decided that it must be his angel. So they don't believe. I mean, if they've been in this prayer of faith, why don't they immediately rejoice when they find out Peter has been rescued? But you know, before we give them too hard of a time, one of my study Bibles asked this really hard question. It said, do you ever pray because you know you're supposed to, but you don't actually expect God to answer your prayer? I think I'd have to admit to some prayers like that. You know, another scripture to consider here is, again, from James, writing about the importance of faith in prayer. James chapter one, verses six and seven say, but let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. Yikes. Honestly, those verses really bothered me for a long time. I think it's because I didn't really understand the full meaning that was here. So let me offer some encouragement. And first of all, just by looking at Acts, you know, it doesn't seem like this first church had the level of faith James is talking about here. And yet, their prayers for Peter are answered. You know, James in this section is specifically talking about asking God for wisdom. And the verse right before this says, God gives generously without finding fault. Or the NLT says, he will not rebuke you for asking. And then it says, and it will be given. So we can ask God for help in any of this, help in our prayer life, help in our faith. In fact, at one point, Jesus' disciples ask him in, in Luke 17, they say, Lord, increase our faith. And he replies, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it will obey you. In Matthew, Jesus says that level of faith moves mountains. Jesus doesn't find fault in their request. He doesn't rebuke his disciples for asking this question. Now we do need to acknowledge there are a couple times that Jesus says to his disciples, oh you of little faith. So faith is important, it is key for us to strive to grow in our faith. But maybe you're like me and you've read these verses before and you put a lot of pressure on yourself and you think, man, God must not be answering my prayers because I just don't have enough faith, I need to try harder. But let's take some heart here from Jesus' loving answer. And probably my favorite example of this in scripture is the time that Jesus healed a boy who was possessed. His father had come to the disciples first, but they weren't able to cast the demon out. And so now Jesus is coming. And we do have to acknowledge here again that Jesus first shows a little bit of frustration. At first he says, you faithless people, how long must I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Which by the way, that's not a bumper sticker for Jesus you ever see, is it? That, that phrase there, is it? Right? We just think Jesus always says nice things. <laughs> But then Jesus talks to the boy's father, and in Mark 9, the father says, have mercy on us and help us if you can. What do you mean if I can, Jesus asks. Anything is possible if a person believes. And the father instantly cried out, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. And what does Jesus do? He heals the boy. He doesn't rebuke him for asking. He doesn't rebuke his little faith. He shows him mercy. So add those words to your prayer life if you need to. I know I have prayed before, Lord, I do believe, please help my unbelief. And remember that faith as small as a mustard seed can move mountains. And maybe you've heard, it's actually what your faith is in, the object of your faith that matters, because gigantic faith in something small or weak doesn't make any difference. 
But mustard seed faith in Jesus, the God of the universe, the creator and sustainer of all things, the Alpha and the Omega, that moves mountains. Or in this case, opens prison doors. So let's take a look here, finally, at God's answer. And let's just do a quick review of God's answers throughout the book of Acts to this point. In Acts chapter two, on the day of Pentecost, when the believers were meeting together, we can safely assume in prayer, God shows up and fills them with the Holy Spirit, just like he promised. In Acts four, when the disciples are released from their first arrest from prison, the church responds by praying that God would give them more boldness to continue proclaiming the word and that God would allow them to have miraculous signs. And then we see the church out sharing the gospel with great boldness, so much so they stay on the radar of the religious and the political leaders. And God gives the apostles the ability to perform many miraculous signs and wonders among the people, it says. In Acts 6, the apostles say that they need to keep their focus on prayer and teaching the word, so they raise up these seven other men to be leaders in the church, at first to take care of uh, the widow's needs, and then they lay their hands on these men and pray for them to, to take care of that. And Stephen is one of these men who becomes this great, bold leader, so much so it costs him his life. In Acts 8, Peter and John pray for a group of new believers to receive the Holy Spirit, and they do. In Acts 9, Peter prays for Tabitha to wake up from the dead, and she does. In Acts 10, both Peter and Cornelius, who don't yet know each other, are praying separately, and yet God brings them together in this powerful way to show the church that, yes, I'm accepting, I'm welcoming Gentiles into his church. And then here in Acts 12, we see Peter miraculously rescued from prison in answer to the church's prayers. God shows some amazing answers throughout Acts. Now, these are all positive answers, maybe except for Stephen. But that's really usually what we mean when we say God answered my prayers, right? Is he did what I asked him to. He gave me a yes, right? He did what, what I wanted. He gave me that thing I was asking for. But do you realize we see both God's yes and God's no in this same section? I mean, what about James? Peter gets 14 verses about his miraculous rescue from prison, and poor James gets one about his execution. It says he, meaning Herod, had the apostle James, John's brother, killed with a sword. And I believe we can safely assume that the church had prayed for James too, right? So why does God let James die and miraculously rescue Peter? I don't know. You know unfortunately, life is full of, even a life of faith is full of difficult, unanswered questions like this. But we need to recognize that God can answer our prayers in more than just yes. He can also tell us no, or sometimes he'll tell us wait, not yet. And this may be an area where our faith needs to grow, you know, trusting in God's love regardless of his answer, trusting in God's sovereignty that he knows what he's doing. Because there's really not much faith involved in this vending machine God who gives us what we want when we want, as long as we just punch the right buttons, right? As long as we say the right words. Our faith needs to be in God, not in the answers. I found this quote from Tony Evans' commentary really helpful. It says, James and Peter were both operating within the will of God, but God had different plans for how each would bring him glory. You know, sometimes the most difficult answer to receive from God is wait or not yet. And there are numerous examples of this throughout scripture. Think about how long Abraham had to wait before God fulfilled the promise of Isaac. Or think about Joseph in Egypt, years full of waiting. 
Or the Israelites wandering in the desert for 40 years having to wait. Now, before you blame God too much with that, it was kind of their fault, right? And there are many examples in, in scripture of women who were barren, who had been praying and waiting to have children. Sarah with Isaac, Hannah with Samuel, Elizabeth with John the Baptist. As, as much as we may not like it, wait seems to be a very common answer throughout scripture. And sometimes even during that waiting period, it seems as though God is totally silent. I mean, think about the 400 years the Israelites were captive in slavery in Egypt. Or the hundreds of years they had to wait for the fulfillment of their promised Messiah. Entire generations went by praying and never seeing the answer. Now, I don't know if you've ever experienced God's silence, but it is difficult. You know, I've struggled with this at, at different times, and, and probably the worst for me was right before COVID. So we had moved to Kansas City. We'd been there about a year, and um, at that point, I recognized that this ministry role that I'd taken on really wasn't a great fit. And it was an environment that really was a workaholic environment with a lot of pressure to keep up. So um, I was gone from home a lot, leaving my wife with our six and one-year-old there alone a lot. And so that wasn't great for our relationship. We really hadn't had time to build any relationships to get any help through that. And so we were really feeling pretty isolated already. I was struggling with some depression and, and I'd been wrestling with God throughout that year of like, why did you bring us here? What, what's going on? Where are you? And hearing nothing. And then boom, COVID hits. And let me tell you, that just about pushed me over the edge, having to be alone in that way. You know, I'm, I'm not this huge extrovert. You know, I call myself an extroverted introvert. I can do this and talk to people for a while, but then I need to get away by myself. But here we are struggling with most of the relationships in our life, and including our marriage, and feeling isolated and down. And, and now we're, we have this forced isolation of being stuck at home, and those walls closed in on me quick. And then add in this struggle with God and prayer and feeling his silence. I mean, his, that silence just felt deafening at that time. It was really a dark and painfully lonely time. But you know what? God did show up. I leaned into a couple of mentors and a Christian counselor at that time, which, which was, of course, answer to prayer, God putting those people in my life. Which, by the way, just kind of a side note here, if you have an area of your faith that you're struggling in, don't do so alone. Go find someone. Find a mentor in that area. Humble yourself and get real with someone. You know, find someone that's well along in that space. And for me, it was prayer. So I found a guy that I thought was a real prayer warrior and invited him to coffee and just said, hey, man, I'm struggling in this. Can you show me what you do? Talk to me about how this works for you. And these guys were significant encouragement to me. You know, one of the suggestions I found that was most helpful was to read through the Psalms and notice there that my experience wasn't unique. David struggles at times with God's silence. One of my favorite Psalms during this time and still to today is Psalm 13. This first verse I prayed a lot. Oh Lord, how long will you forget me? Forever? How long will you look the other way? How long must I struggle with anguish in my soul, with sorrow in my heart every day? How long will my enemy have the upper hand? Turn and answer me, O Lord. Restore the sparkle to my eyes or I will die. Don't let my enemies gloat, saying we have defeated him. Don't let them rejoice at my downfall. But then as I mentioned on Palm Sunday, I love that David always turns it around and, starts and exalts God, or here he renews his faith in him. But I trust in your unfailing love. I will rejoice because you have rescued me. I will sing to the Lord because he is good to me. 
If you're struggling with God's silence or a long period of waiting, man, just go to the Psalms or read some of those stories of others in the Bible who've had to wait and recognize that you're not alone. You're actually in pretty good company. And I'd also encourage you to see God's silence as an invitation to lean into him rather than push him away. It's also a great time to learn to just sit in silence with God. You know, we need to listen as much in prayer as we talk. I had to work really hard at that, but it was a great opportunity for me to grow my faith in this area, and, and it can be for you as well. You know, one of the books that I read on prayer during that time shared this quote attributed to John Newton, who's a famous hymn writer like Amazing Grace. He said, if we're not getting much out of going to God in prayer, we will certainly get nothing out of staying away. So keep praying, keep leaning in. I mean, this Acts church may have felt like, where are you, God, after James was killed, right? Not only is he one of the 12 apostles, he's one of Jesus' inner circle of Peter, James, and John. And now James is dead and Peter's in prison. That had to be a blow to their faith. But they lean right back into prayer. And speaking of being in good company, even Jesus experienced this. You know, earlier I had mentioned Jesus' earnest, fervent, gut-wrenching prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, asking God, Father, if you are willing, please take this cup of suffering away from me, yet I want your will to be done, not mine. And I'm not sure if Jesus got a no here or just silence from God. It appears God doesn't answer him. Now, of course, Jesus already knew the answer. He, he knew what was coming. He told his disciples that this was why he came, but he still prayed. He still asked. We can ask God for anything. The key here was his willful submission to God's plan. Not my will, but yours be done. Which reflects back to his teaching on prayer, right? Your will be done. And that's the posture that we need to strive to find in true faithful prayer. Yes, we can ask God for anything, but we must also be willing to hear whatever his answer is and surrender to that which I know that's often difficult. But, so what do we do with all of this? I think if we want to see and experience this truth that God answers the faithful prayers of his people, our application point here this morning is very simple. We need to pray. Let me say that again. The application point here this morning is really simple. We need to pray. As a church, in our groups, as individuals, let's Pray, let's follow the example here of this Acts church. Make prayer important. You know, to help my prayer life, I've read several books over the years, and probably my favorite I just read last fall. It's called Praying Like Monks, Living Like Fools. What a great title, right? And in that book, Tyler Statton, who's a, a pastor and a well-respected prayer warrior, he offers this pretty scathing commentary on the modern Western church. Listen to this. But the modern church's best-kept secrets secret is this. We believe in productivity, not prayer. The church's underground atheism of our time is that we'll busy ourselves with almost anything except prayer. Ouch. Yet I can't say I would disagree. You know, you don't have to be involved in church very long to know that we love our committees, we love our meetings, and yet when you go to those meetings, how much time do we typically devote to prayer rather than maybe a beginning and an ending quick prayer versus what we devote to the agenda, you know, the things we need to get done, the things, listen, we accomplish. I'd have to confess to leading some meetings like that. Another reason I think we in the American church struggle to relate to a story like this from Acts is that we don't face these same kind of issues. 
So we've not seen these huge, amazing answers to prayer. I mean, who do you know from our church that has recently been arrested or put to death for their faith? And yet throughout Christian history, this is pretty much the norm. And even for our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world today, this is not an uncommon story for them to know someone from their church who has recently been arrested or killed. So by the way, that's another way that we need to pray. Let's pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ in the persecuted church. Let's pray for our missionaries, particularly those who are in areas that we can't even disclose where they are because they face actual persecution like this. And if you feel called to that, go out to efree.org outreach. There's some great prayer guides there of how you can support and pray for our missionaries. But, but what about us? I mean, if we truly believed in prayer, it'd be happening all around us, right? I mean, every week we mention that there's a prayer team down front to come up and pray. And yet, if, if you're on that team or if you've paid attention, you probably notice that it's not ever very busy. And that's not exclusive to our church. Every church I've been a part of, the in-person prayer team is, is rarely busy. Now, I, I hope that's because we're praying in other spaces, but, but I, don't, I don't know. And yet there are some of us I know who are facing serious things, maybe things that feel like mountains that need to be moved and we feel like we need that earnest, fervent prayer. I mean, we see these things on the prayer list that goes out twice a month, by the way. And those are prayed for faithfully. Thank you to those of you who are on that team who pray for those prayers. And if you'd like to join that prayer group or if you have a prayer you feel like you would like the church to pray for, go to efree.org prayer and you can either join the team or you can submit your prayer there. You know, we held a special prayer service just over a month ago, and unfortunately, I was out of town then, but heard great feedback from it. And by the way, we have another one coming up in July, but the prayer requests came pouring in from that. And those that were willing to have them publicly, they're out there on the back prayer wall. And so as I felt convicted about my own prayer life and needing to pray for others more, I visited that prayer wall a few times over the last few weeks. And, and I gotta say, it's, it's a little bit discouraging because there's many of those prayers that only have one or two markings on them that somebody prayed for them. So as you visit that prayer wall, put your initials, put the date that you prayed. That's such an encouragement to people to see that their prayer requests are actually being prayed for. Church, let's pray for one another, amen? Oh, you can do better than that. Church, let's pray for one another, amen? And we don't need to wait for the next prayer service. Just start asking the people around you. Of course, first and foremost, in your groups, but also you don't have to be in church very long to, to realize that everybody always sits in the same seat, right? So get to know the people that sit around you. Ask how their life is going. Ask how you can pray for them. And then let's also start setting aside times, just each of us individually, just to be alone to talk with God like Jesus did. That's probably been my biggest takeaway from the Rooted experience. You know, in week three, we study prayer, but rather than coming together just to talk about prayer, we spend the entire hour praying to God which has been a great challenge for me, a great stretch for me, and, and a great learning experience. So set aside intentional times just to be with Jesus. You know, we serve a God who loves to answer even the feeble prayers of his followers because he loves us as his dear children. And yet he also wants us to grow beyond feeble prayers to those that are opening prison doors, those that move mountains. So let's strive to do that. Let's strive to grow in our faith, in our prayer life, and let's give God the opportunity to prove that God answers the faithful prayers of his people. Now, rather than me just closing us out in prayer this morning, what I'd like to do is just give a couple of minutes for all of us to spend some time talking to God, spend some time in silent prayer. The piano's gonna play under this time, and in just a couple minutes, the band's gonna come back out. 
But just right where you are, whatever you walked in here with this morning, whatever you're feeling the Spirit lead you to right now, just go to your Heavenly Father, take a couple minutes to talk 